you'll take your Bibles then and turn to Hosea chapter 11 tonight. We looked last week at verse 1. Tonight we will look at the rest of the chapter through verse 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall raise against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adama? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart's recoil within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Well, there's a story that comes from Mexico of a broken relationship between a man and his son named Paco. As the story goes, the two became estranged for more than five years, stemming from a bitter argument over money and finance. Paco, the son, laughed in a fit of rage, determined never to speak to his father again. But as the years went on, the father longed to hear from his son, but he received no cards, no calls, no contacts whatsoever. Desperate to find his son, the father placed an ad in a newspaper, and this is what it read. Paco, this is your father. All is forgiven. Meet me in the cathedral at Town Square tomorrow at noon. I love you. The next day, trying Not to get his hopes up, Paco's father made his way to the cathedral. Upon his arrival, he was amazed to not only find his son, but 43 other young men named Paco trying to reconcile with their fathers. Now, is that story true or is it embellished? It's hard to tell, but you can understand the sentiments of it. For in our familial relationships between husband and wife, between parent and children, we have a glimpse of the relationship that we are to have and that we do have with God. God has given us these relationships because our God is a relational God and he enters into covenant with us. And through these relationships, we know God. At least we know God in parts. I say in parts because no human relationship 
can compare, no matter how good it is or was, to the relationship that we have with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. In some ways, that is amazing, isn't it? If you think about your marriage or you think about your relationship with your kids and your grandkids, there is a genuine love. We love our family. We love our spouse. We love our children, our grandchildren. We love them to the moon and back, as we say. But that love does not begin to compare with the love of an infinite God towards his children. And we must not lose that. Because I think oftentimes we can look at our relationship with God and look at it through a theological lens, and we should, or perhaps in a scholarly and an academic way, and through it lose the heart of the relationship, lose the love, so to speak, that God has for us through Christ and that love that we are to have for God. We can lose our first love, as it talks about in Revelation. Love is the grand total, the grand sum of our relationship with the Lord. And what we have, I think, in Hosea chapter 11 is a picture of the love of a father. In a sense, in very intimate terms, we see the heart of a father for his child. The problem is that the child is rebellious and not returning that love towards his father as he ought to love. And the results that we see, if we can put it in these terms, is a broken heart of a father. That this love would be reciprocated. And so we see this yearning for the father, this restoration of the relationship. But we'll see that God uses even this broken relationship with his son Israel to fulfill his grand redemptive plans. And through it, we see the love of God, the love of our father towards us as his children. So we'll see this tonight in three points, a father's love, a spurned love, and then a redemptive love. First, a father's love. As I mentioned before, our relationships parallel the relationship with the Lord. There are to be a picture of our relationship with God, and Hosea is filled with them. The obvious one is that of marriage. Hosea's marriage to his wife, Gomer. Through it, we see this relationship that God had with Israel. Hosea, in a sense, is the godly, righteous man of God, the prophet of God. And Gomer, as you remember, was the prostitute that runs off with other lovers. And here we see the picture of the relationship that God had with Israel. Well, again, here in chapter 11, we have another picture, another relationship, but not between husband and wife, but between a father and a child. Notice in 
Verse 1, we looked at it last week, that God calls Israel his child, calls him my son. And last week we saw how Jacob and Israel went down into Egypt. And there they were formed into a nation. And that God delivered them out, out of Egypt, verse 1 says, I called my son. And we know that when Israel was called out of Egypt, that they weren't just a small group. They weren't just a small family anymore. No, they were in a formidable people in the millions. And even though they were, in a sense, a, a mass of humanity, the Lord still calls him his child. Israel is my child. Israel is my son. With that comes all the affections that we would expect that a father would have for his son, for his child. I think it's a universal experience for any parents, and no doubt it's true of grandparents as well, but I'm not at that stage. But that when you first see your child, there is this immediate love for them. In fact, when you first put your eyes upon them, even though you do not know them, even though you've not really had any interaction with them, there is an immediate bond, there is an immediate love. And that bond and that love only grows exponentially because they are yours. They are your child. They are your son. They are your daughter. They are your grandchild. And that is, in a sense, the narrative that we get here as well. Look at how this passage speaks of this relationship. Verse 1, I called them out of Egypt. I delivered them, in a sense. Verse 3. I taught them how to walk. I took them up by their arm. I healed them. I led them, verse 4, with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. It's a, a difficult phrase to translate. The NIV translates it. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. I bent down to them and fed them. In a sense, you, you see this father figure doing all of these actions for a small child, a small child in a sense that can't help itself and needs a lot of help, needs to be held by the hand in order to, be, uh, to walk, that needs help in order to, in a sense, eat, to to bend down to help feed them because they are not able to feed themselves. It's a picture of a father, in a sense, reminiscing of when his child was small and remembering all the things that he did for this child and didn't do it out of mere duty, didn't do it out of mere obligation, did it because he was his father and he loved his child. No doubt you have done that. You do do that. Perhaps you go through old pictures. And at every picture you say, oh, I remember this and I remember that. And you remember a time that has gone by. But there's a wonderful remembering. 
And with that comes the flood of emotions. The emotions well up, don't they? Because you have that love in your heart and have had that love all along when they were first born all the way to the age that they are now. And sometimes we reminisce about the early days and sometimes we call them the the easier days or the simpler days. And that is in a sense what the Lord is doing here as they come out of Egypt and Israel comes into the desert. The Lord literally led them. He taught them. Taught them right from wrong in a sense how to walk. He fed them with manna from heaven and quail. And even though it wasn't a perfect time, just like when you had small children, it's not a perfect time, but in the sense it was a simpler time because they were much easier to manage when they're small because you're greater than them and can kind of direct them in the way that they should go. But as they grow up, they get a mind of their own, as we say. And that's, in a sense, what Israel has done. They have grown up and they have gone out on their own. And what the result is, is they have gone out and have turned their back upon the home, upon the Father. As Hosea writes this, Israel is no longer in the deserts. They're in the land on their own, and sadly, it's not going well. And so second, we see the spurned love of the Father. That even though God loved them, we read of this in verse 2. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. The love that was demonstrated by the Father has not drawn them in near, but rather seemingly has pushed them farther away. So much so it says that they're turning to other gods, even Baal himself. And you might read that and think, after all that the Lord had done for them, why would they turn to other gods when they have the one true God? Surely these other gods are not better. In fact, they are far worse, and we read of that. We read, as it says in verse 5, that they will go to Assyria, and Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. Verse 6, the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. They are being brought into destruction because of their turning away from the Father to these other gods. But as it goes on to say, verse 7, my people are bent on turning away from me. They are set. And in so doing, they are set on their own ruin, their own rebellion. And the Lord, in a sense, shakes his head. But we should not think of this as the Lord, just think of it as uh, indifference. Saying, oh well, kids will be kids. They'll do what they're going to do. No, we see the languishing heart of the Father and 
verse 8, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adama? How can I treat you like Zeboim? And those last two are cities that were also destroyed in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God is saying, how can I treat my own son, my own child, in this way? These words should not be missed, especially as Calvinists. Sometimes we can look at salvation and damnation very coldly through the doctrine of election. Eternal damnation is not a cold doctrine with no heart or no emotions. No, it should break our heart because it breaks, in a sense, the heart of the Father who would decree such or see any to perish. And some of you know this firsthand. Some of you, I know, have children that have walked away from the Lord, even perhaps have walked away from the family. I have counseled enough parents in my pastoral ministry to know the heartbreak of this. To try to answer those questions. Why? Why would they do this? Why would they spur our love? Why would they spur the love of God? And why would they turn to the world when the world has nothing to offer? The world has no comfort, no care for them. Much like the prodigal son is... He left the Father. It has such a promising start with parties and friends and revelry. But in the end, he's literally in the pig pen. And that is a picture of anyone that turns to the world. The world seems so appealing, so attractive, but it has nothing to offer. It's hollow. We wonder, will. Our children, will our grandchildren, great-grandchildren wake up to this realization? Will they think, what am I doing? Why have I turned my back on that which was good? The love of my family. The love of God. Why have I turned from that which I was taught from my youth? I hope so. If that is true of any of you, then my prayer would be that your son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter would be like the prodigal son. You would recognize their own sin and rebellion and return. And it is such a heartbreak because of our love for them. And what we see here is that our Heavenly Father knows what that is like because of His love. And therefore, we should take comfort in that as we go to him in prayer. We have a sympathetic high priest, a father that knows what it's like to have a rebellious son. And yet, his love remains, no doubt, as your love remains for your child if they walk in the ways of the Lord or if they do not. But third, we see then hope with that of a redemptive love. Out of that love and longing for his child, says that the Lord does not cast off. Notice it says in verse 9, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. 
And that might be surprising to us, thinking they have spurned the love of the Father. Of course they deserve punishment. Of course they deserve to be cut off. Of course they deserve the wrath of God and his burning anger. Thank God, God is not like man, not like us. God is a God that is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Has love and redemption as well as holiness and justice. That none of those things are compromised. But the Lord spares ultimate destruction on Israel. And the Lord spares ultimate destruction upon us even in our rebellion Because the wrath of his son is poured out on another. The wrath that is deserved is poured out on a substitute. It's poured out on his very own begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we have the great irony of the story, do we not? That the perfect son receives the punishment of the imperfect sinful, rebellious son. And the rebellious son receives the reward of the righteous, perfect son. That is truly substitutionary atonement. That is what Martin Luther called the happy exchange, that Christ received hell so that I could receive heaven. And that is not just for Israel, but it is for us all. All that look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, that is a part of the great redemptive plan of God. That as Israel turned their back upon God, God used that as an opportunity for the gospel, the good news to be spread to the Gentiles. You can read of that in Romans 9 through 11. That through the hardening of Israel, he has used it for the grafting in of the Gentiles to bring in the likes of you and me. And though we were sinful rebellions, lost in our sin, that we were not the people of God, that we were strangers of the covenant, the Lord called us and brought us into his family. And that same amazing grace that saves us is the same amazing grace that sustains us to this very day. It keeps us. And we should never lose. We should never forget. We should never lose the fact that God loves us. And we should be overwhelmed by that love and by that grace. And if God loves such a rebellious, wayward son, how much more does he love his perfect and righteous son, the Lord Jesus Christ? In fact, we hear those very words in the Gospels. Do we not the voice of the Father saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then we contemplate the mystery that the Son came for us and that we are now found in Him. We are found in that Son. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. His love becomes our love. His favor becomes our favor. The same love that God has for his only begotten son he now has for us the same pleasure and favor is upon us he does not treat us as our sins deserve he treats us 
as his son deserves. Let me repeat that for you because that needs to be implanted upon your hearts and upon your mind. God does not treat us as our sins deserve, but treats us as his son deserves. That is the type of love that God has for us. We are now his well-pleasing children. If you love your children, and no doubt you do, how much more does God love his? And that love should spur us on. That we should not be like Israel. The more they were called, went away. But that love should woo us, should draw us nigh unto him. We should be overwhelmed, as I said, by the love of our Father. The one who, as it says in verses 3 through 4, taught us to walk, took us by the arm, has healed us, has led us, has loved us. This is your Father, beloved Will we not respond in like kind? Will we not respond with love towards him? We love him because he first loved us. And that redemptive love of Christ in us should spread towards others as we go out into all of the nations. And we see a little bit of that in verse 10 where it says, They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, the children shall come Trembling from the west, they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I'll return them to their homes, declares the Lord. This is speaking of the exile, but no doubt is pointing forward to the very end. The picture of the end times when the last trumpet shall call and the lion of Judah shall roar and the Lord will gather his elect from the north and the south and from the east and from the west and he will return us to our true home, our true home with the Lord and we shall be with our everlasting Father and in his love for all of eternity. What a day that will be. But until then, we have a mission, do we not? To spread that love, the love that we've received to others through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. To spread the good news to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our family and beyond. The Lord is gracious to call the prodigal home. Indeed, that is what he has done in us. He has called us and he has loved us. Let me close tonight by reading a quote from John Owen. The more we see of God's love, the more we delight in him. All that we learn of God will only frighten us away from him if we do not see him as loving and merciful. But if your heart is taken up with the Father's love as the chief property of his nature, it cannot help but choose to be overpowered, conquered, and embraced by him. This, if anything, will arouse our desires to make our eternal home with God. If the love of a father will not make a child delight in him, what will? So do this. Set your thoughts on the eternal love of the Father. And see if your father is not aroused to delight in him. Sit down for a while. And this delightful spring of living water 
and you will soon find its streams sweet and delightful. You who used to run from God will now be able, will not now be able even for a second to keep any distance from him. End quote. Indeed, we need to pause for a while and allow this thought to be upon our hearts and our mind. We need to delight again in this spring of living water that is sweet and delightful. Those that used to run from God will not now be able, even for a second, to keep any distance from him. For we are found in Christ, and in Christ we are found in the love of God that is ours. Beloved, this night rejoice in the Father's love for you as the children of God. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful word. In many ways, it's too wonderful for us to even comprehend and behold. Lord, our hearts are truly overwhelmed when we think of that love being poured out upon the likes of us, that we would even be called yours, let alone children of yours. Well, Lord, that is indeed what we are because of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of the love of the Son given to us. We are now made sons in him, and in that we rejoice. Lord, may that fill our hearts and our minds this day. We pray this in Christ, our Savior's name. Amen.